I'm reading from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to be betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good morning. Thank you, Janet, for reading that long passage. It's lovely to see a few of your faces here in church. It's really lovely to see be sharing space with those of you who are at home. I asked Janet to read that extended um, set of events around this triumphal entry, Jesus' coming towards Jerusalem on the young donkey and the waving of palm branches, because of course this passage that we remember today on Palm Sunday is one part of um, the arc of a very, very, very big story. So we're just going to zoom out from the palm branches and the donkey just a little bit and think about a few of these events around that moment, just to give us a richer sense of what was happening here and what this was all about. So before we engage with this story, all the threads, all the characters that I really hope to bring alive a little bit more in your minds and hearts and imaginations, let's just pause and pray. Here we are, dear Lord Jesus, each one of us arriving for worship this morning in a variety of states, God, whatever state of mind body, spirit, and soul we find ourselves in here now, Lord. We just want to devote ourselves to you, to offer you our time, our presence, our attention. Lord, may we have the gift of being as attentive to you as your followers were on that road that day, raising up their hearts in praise. And we also desire, dear Lord Jesus, to have a better sense of who you are. We want to see you with greater eyesight. We want to walk more nearly and step with you. And we want to love you more deeply than we do. So would you graciously help us to open our hearts, to be present and attentive to you insofar as we're able to, just in this moment, and would you be so gracious as to give us the gift of a tiny glimpse of your own dear self. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Okay. So it's a story. It's a story. And I want to just back up a little bit and take us a few weeks probably before to uh, the home of Mary and Martha, who we know well throughout the Gospels. And Mary and Mark Martha are having a tough week. And I know that we have sort of been in the wilderness in our sermon series. We have all been in the wilderness in this past year. And I know that many of you have had some tough weeks. You've lost dear ones. You've ridden through some really challenging storms. And I know that for all of us, with the wider dynamics at play, um, the anxiety is just kind of on high alert in the background all the time. And we're all sort of living in that at the moment. But dear Mary and Martha, we're having a really rough week because their brother was very ill and seemed to be going. He seemed to be dying. And they just knew that if their friend, the teacher, the rabbi, the healer, Yeshua, Jesus, would come, that he could probably, sorry, save their brother and they really wanted him to come so desperately. And they sent word for him. They sent urgent word asking him to come. 
And they waited for him, and um, Lazarus declined, and Lazarus went, and Jesus hadn't come. And I, I'm feeling emotion because I've got a friend who's on her way out right now, but also, I just know that the pain of losing their brother was so deep and so awful and probably compounded by their frustration and lack of understanding as to why Jesus didn't come. I'm sure they were so cross. And actually, John chapter 11 gives us a lot of verses about when Jesus did finally arrive, how annoyed they were with him and how sad they were with him. And Jesus felt the depth of that sorrow with them. And then you know the story, but we're just going to review it. Four days after that tomb had been closed, Jesus opened it and went into that place of death and spoke life. And Lazarus came back to life. I mean, what a ridiculous roller coaster they had all been on together. Lazarus came back to life. Jesus walked into that place of death and spoke life and healing and resurrection. And Lazarus returned to life. Now, people were just feeling it. They were on this ride. They had been through the death. They were there for the resurrection. They were there for the life. And uh, this groundswell that had really risen up over all three years of Jesus' ministry just started to crest. And more and more people came because so many had been touched in so many different ways by this teacher, this rabbi, Yeshua, who had brought life and resurrection, not only to Lazarus straight out of the tomb, but to the woman who'd been caught in adultery. He brought resurrection to her reputation, to her dignity, to the man who had demons. He brought resurrection. He brought life to his mental health, to the people who were ill and poorly and, and deaf and lame. Jesus brought life in so many ways. He restored people in the places that they were dead. He restored community. He restored relationship. He restored mind and heart and body. And people wanted it. People were hungry for it. They tasted life and they were drawn to it because the spirit of God is life-giving and it is what our deepest selves want and desire and have been made for. Fullness of life. And Jesus was bringing it. Now, I want you to hold on to that sense of alive, of life, of passion. And I know that Jesus has brought life to you in some way or another. Or you wouldn't be sitting here. You wouldn't be spending your Sunday morning watching this on your little screen. You wouldn't be here in church unless you too had felt that. So I just want you to, as we're talking here, just gather that into yourself. How and where has the spirit of life been spoken over me, my heart, my relationships, my family, my peace of mind, my community. How have I known that? Just start drawing that into your heart because that's what this day is about. Now, as always, the story is not simple. It's complex. There are many characters and many dynamics and loads going on. And I want to introduce you to 
a dynamic, which comes in the form of some characters. And I want to introduce you to the chief priests. In John 11, they come in in verse 45. If you could just pop up my picture, here we go. We have the chief priests and the Pharisees who have different roles in this story. And they're watching this groundswell of people, of energy, of attraction to this healing life of Jesus. And it's not quite hitting them the same way. Here's what I want you to know about the chief priests, a few things, really key things so that you can understand where they're coming from. Number one, in order to be a chief priest, the number one prerequisite is to be born into a particular family. In fact, the chief priests really were a very aristocratic family altogether. They came from a very particular line through the tribe of Levi, through the China tribe of Aaron, through one of his grandsons, Zadok. And as time went on, it continued to be this very particular, very elite, very wealthy family who were the chief priests. And the other thing about the chief priests is that they were paid, so part of their riches were paid out of the temple tax. And you'll remember that in order for any ordinary Hebrew to worship in the temple, they had to pay a temple tax. And this is what the money changers were doing. They were changing their normal day-to-day -day currency into temple currency so that they could pay their temple tax. And the temple tax went to line the pockets of the chief priests. You can see the dress of this modern day actor who's dressed as a chief priest. They, their homes would have been full of beauty, full of the trappings of wealth. Their clothes would have been, they were wealthy, they were the elite. I'm sure you can picture it. We have plenty of modern day equivalents. And then from the chief priests, there would have been chosen a high priest. And the things to know about the high priest are these. Number one, it was the high priest who was the only person who was allowed to step into the Holy of Holies one day of the year to see God face to face. But the high priest could only ever be somebody who was chosen out of this family. And it was such a family dynasty that during this time of Jesus, Annas had been the high priest for 10 years. And then in succession after Annas was, was set down, it was Annas's five sons and his son-in-law who succeeded him. So this was really um, an inside job, a family affair. And in addition, the, the high priest was appointed by, wait for it, Rome. The chief priests were very tied up in the politics of Rome, very influenced by Greek culture, and really ruling the whole thing, really holding the power of the whole thing. And this is so much, as, as we come through Holy Week, Jesus is so angry in the temple, and it's this power structure that Jesus is angry about, because this is not what Jesus is about, and yet this is the grip in which the religious experience of his people are being held. The Pharisees were very different altogether. And yes, a lot of the Pharisees questioned Jesus a lot, but the Pharisees were much more of the people. They were, the Pharisees spent their whole lives devoted to the study of scripture, the traditions of the, the, the pharisaical traditions, so kind of these oral traditions of the meaning of the scripture. And um, there was a lot of debate. The whole style of the Pharisees was to sort of say, look at a scripture and say, well, this rabbi says this, but this rabbi says that. And so in some of their questioning to Jesus, there would have just been the general style of conversation and discussion and thinking it through. 
And there would have been a huge range of Pharisees too. Think, if you, if you put together every priest in the Church of England from the top to the bottom of our country, you would have a massive range of gender and age and political disposition and theology and churchmanship, sort of how style of worship. You would have a huge range. And I think the Pharisees might be a little bit more like this. And yet there were some who felt quite threatened by what Jesus, Yeshua, was doing. They felt that this teaching was really not quite in line with the traditions that they were trying to uphold. So verse 45 of John chapter 11, verse 47, 46, 47, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. It's so attractive what he's doing. Everyone will believe in him. And then, this is what they're afraid of. The Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. They've got this structure of power that they're afraid of losing. And in their fear of losing this structure that they, that they know, and especially for the chief priests that gives them all the power that they have, they feel that they can't afford to lose it and they need to squash this rabbi. So Jesus, we see at the end of John chapter 11, um, knows that it's not safe. He's well aware that this is really hot now and that his life is sought. And so he goes away into the wilderness, John chapter 11, verses 54. And I just really think it's so interesting that Jesus pops into the wilderness here because we know that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was in the wilderness. And a wilderness time, as we all know, because we are all in the wilderness in a way right now, is a time when things that are tricky, things that are sort of deep within us start to rise and we wrestle with different and deeper stuff. And one of the main things that Jesus wrestled with, that Satan tempted him with in the wilderness, was this question of power. And it's the power that these chief priests have that's sort of skewing their whole view of what this whole thing is about. And Jesus himself wrestled with that power. Um, we have a verse, if you can help me find it, our wilderness verse. When Satan tempted Jesus and took him to the top of the hill and said, these are all the nations, look at them all before you. And um, yes, I will give you all their authority and their splendor. I will give you all their glory and dominion if you fall down and worship me. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't do that, but obviously, Jesus wrestled with that to have a power over the people, to have authority and dominion and glory and splendor of being in that high position of power. And Jesus was able to wrestle with that and wrestle it to the ground and say, get behind me, Satan. This is not the way that leads to peace. This is not the way that leads to peace. 
I was really, really compelled a couple of months ago uh, by this description I heard by Brené Brown of the different kinds of power. You can research this online very easily. There are lots of social scientists who talk about it, but there's a distinction between having power over versus power with or power for. And in power over, there's a basic assumption that power is finite. And fear is used in order to sort of protect or hoard the power that's already held by whoever's in the position of power. So in power over, there's a sense of um, a finite amount of power. And fear is used to protect and hoard the amount of power that I have. And being right is more important than getting it right. I hope that kind of intuitively makes sense to you. In contrast, to have power with or power for someone else, the basic assumption here is that as power is shared, the power grows and the power becomes infinite. So power isn't something that I need to hoard for myself, but power is something that can be given away. Others can be empowered to become their full, free, whole selves. So there's this sense of service, being in the service of rather than being served by others. And I believe that in the wilderness when Jesus rejected Satan's temptation to be in power over, he was stepping into this power with and power for. And it was in that state that the Spirit of God was free to flow through him and out of him. And this is what put the healing in his hands. This is what allowed him to bring this spirit of life and freedom and wholeness, fullness of life, and um, joy and peace and restoration, all the things that we deeply long for, that we deeply need to bring healing to all those places of dysfunction and um, harm, addiction, darkness, anger, fear, all this stuff that, that with, with holds us back, that restricts, and Jesus was bringing freedom from restoration, life, the Spirit of God. So this great spirit that Jesus allowed to flow through him and out of him, of course it is the spirit of God and as it moved into people's bodies and minds and hearts and lives and communities and families and relationships and touched them and transformed them, they were drawn to it. So of course in this great moment, they've come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and they know, they hear and catch wind that Jesus and Lazarus are together and they want to be there because this is where the life is. And so that day they see Jesus coming humbly on the back of a donkey because he's not about power over. He's about power with and power to. And they are able to come with their whole selves, perhaps because so many traveled from all over, perhaps many that he had healed through our gospel stories were there that day, or their, or their families, or their friends, and there they were, able to come. So I just want to invite you, if you feel free to, no pressure if you don't, but maybe even just to put your own hand on your heart, and to just step into the spirit of that moment, with the palm branches lifted high, and from the bottom of their hearts, people saying, 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our king. This is our heart's desire. This is our savior. Hoshana, Hoshana, which is save us, O blessed redeemer. You are the one to save us. You are the one who brings the spirit of God, the presence of God, for which we long and for which we're made. Hoshana. So in this beautiful moment where hearts are lifted in gratitude and joy and glory of this one who has brought the true spirit of God, if you want to just keep your hand on your heart and just hold this sense of who Jesus truly is, then we have this scene. It's picked up in Luke's, Luke's account of the story. If you could just put the picture on the slide. Jesus comes down and comes to this point in the geography as he's coming towards Jerusalem where he sees over to the city. And you can see in this painting, this beautiful city that has the spirit of God dwelling within it. And yet there's this dark cloud and there's this sense that the leaders, the holders of the key in that city have not got it. They haven't seen the things that have made for peace. Jesus is so heartbroken with them and for them. He's so frustrated. He weeps over the city because the presence of God is here. It is for them. It is among them. And their eyes have been blinded by their power, by their need to hold with white knuckles this this structure, this system, their attachment to their position of power and wealth, and in it they are missing the point. It's this profound exercise in missing the point, and he weeps for them. So all these things, this great story that holds it all together, the glory, the honor, the beauty of God's presence among us, and how easy it is to miss it. So I've talked much longer than I've meant to, but let's just take, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Let's just take a moment. I've got a couple of questions. Could you put my questions up? And I think what I want to suggest is that you take these questions away and sit with them through the week. Maybe you sit with them now. We're just going to sing a song and praise and keep, keep worshiping God here. But here are the questions. What is it that prompts my heart to sing hallelujah? And is there a way in which I've been holding on to power over? If you're anything like me, it's really easy when you hear about these kind of things like power over to think of other people who are really bad at that. But actually, we all cling on to power in tiny situations, little situations, in a way that's not helpful. So maybe the Lord is ready to help you move away from that. Or maybe you have thought patterns, habits, attachments, that are just like blinders, blinkers, that are keeping you from the fullness of God that is right here being offered to you right now. So some things to sit with, to think about, to be with. I think maybe we just need to move towards our last worship song now, do we? And I'll just say a little prayer, yeah? Is that, is that about right? Okay. Oh God, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are here among us in your fullness.
that you offer us all we have ever longed for and so much more. Would you help us to see you in the fullness of who you are, to let go of the things that keep us from seeing you? And may we have the grace to raise our hearts and hands in Hosanna, praise of you, dear Lord Jesus. Amen.